With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Today's episode of Hang Up and Listen is supported by MeUndies. MeUndies makes the world's most comfortable underwear in a variety of styles and patterns. Head to MeUndies.com slash hang up to get free shipping and 20% off your first order. And by Ritani. Buying an engagement ring? Check out Ritani. Shop online and your ring is made in New York and sent to you or a local jeweler. It's that easy. Go to R-I-T-A-N-I dot com slash hang up today for their free diamond giveaway. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of May 31st, 2016. On today's show, we're going to talk about the Warriors' amazing comeback against the Thunder in the Western Conference Finals. We'll also discuss the implosion of the Baylor Athletics Department with head coach Art Bryles and athletic director Ian McCaw, both out on account of the football program's terrible handling of sexual assault complaints. And we'll be joined by Ken Early of the Irish Times and the Second Captains podcast, who will explain to us all why we hate the collective we hate Cristiano Ronaldo. I'm in Washington, D.C. with my colleague, co-host, compatriot, the Clay Thompson to my Festus Azili. It's uh, Stefan Fats. <laughs> you thought I was going there, but I went somewhere else. That was a misdirection play. <laughs> Stefan's the author of the book's Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Splashy. Are you not a Splash Brother then? No. I'm a role player. I said solid screens. We can make you a Splash Brother. <laughs> if Let's, you want to be a Splash Brother. I'm one of the Splash Quintuplets of Canada. They have us in an exhibit where everyone can come and uh, gawk at us. Hey, it's Mike Pesca of The Gist. How are you, Mike? I don't think they like the name Splash Brothers. I think the Bash Brothers like that. Mm-hmm. And it just, as I'm saying it out loud, I, until this very moment, did not get the Bay Area connection, Bash Brothers and Splash Brothers, but that's what it's got to be, right? There's also the splash hits when you hit the ball out of the Giants stadium. There is kind of a splash theme in the Bay Area. Bay Area splash theme. Yeah. 
And the San Jose Sharks making a splash, as one does on ice, a hard thwack as they lost their first game. And thus ends our hockey coverage for the week. <laughs> they just really like movies about mermaids. That's why that's, why that's their nickname. So before we get into the meat of the show, Stefan, you had some hot spelling bee takes for us? I went to, uh, I went to the spelling bee. Oh, so you were live tweeting from the actual bee. I thought Not you were for just... the finals. Okay. I, I was there for the preliminaries. Awesome atmosphere, the bee. The bee is great. Love the kids. Love the bee. Love making them stand up there till 11 o'clock at night. Do I need to prompt you again? Hey, Stefan, I hear you had some hot spelling bee takes that you wanted to share with us. You know, I have a <laughs> sneaking suspicion that Nihar, the machine, the co-champion. Nihar Jenga. The one who was not only spelling his words correctly, but mouthing everyone else's <laughs> words and knowing exactly when everyone got something wrong. And giving the definitions of the words rather than asking for the definitions. I have a sneaking suspicion That's just that being Nihar helpful. wanted to tie. I'm not saying he threw it, but it might have been an Aquila and the B situation because he wasn't missing anything. Right. And the word that he got wrong was mishbrocken. It wasn't mishbrocken. It was another derivation of a sprocken word that I was kind of shocked. I was mishbrockened that he well, got no, it wrong. Well, no, the other one that he got wrong was tetradram. Yeah. And, and the, the definition, which he did ask for, included drachma. Yeah. And he spelled it T-E-T-R-A-D-R-A-M instead of D-R-A-C-H-M. I like that the spelling bee is popular or, enough now that we can have conspiracy theories. Or maybe he's 11 years old and made a mistake. That seems incredibly unlikely to me. <laughs> I would like to add to this by reading from his official bio, favorite movies include Aquila and the Bee. <laughs> and Splash. Don't forget Splash. For Slate Plus this week, we're going to advise our colleague, Allison Benedict, who's torn about who to root for in the NBA Finals. She's got some Cavs connections. She likes the Warriors. It's going to be a little, like a Dear Prudence, but for sports, Mike. So something of a Dear Abby Wambach. Something akin to a Dear Abby Wambach. Sign up for Slate Plus and get a free two-week trial and get bonus segments like this one at slate.com slash hangupplus. The Warriors were down 3-1 to one in the Western Conference Finals. Some people on the internet were writing about how they collapsed, long articles about all the different theories about why they collapsed on Slate, but it also in other publications. Let's not just focus on the Slate of it. But they won the last three games. In Game 7, they trailed for a good portion of the game. They trailed by double digits in the second quarter, but they outscored the Thunder 29-12 to 12 in the third, and they held on for a 96 to 88 win. The outcome of the series was very much in doubt. And I think it does validate the Warriors in a way that they had not been validated before. I don't think they necessarily needed to be validated, but this was the toughest series they've played in the last two years. This was the most adversity they faced in the last two years. And I think it was great to see them put in the crucible and come out and emerge and, as I said, validate the greatness. Mm. They stared into the abyss, and it stared back, is what you're saying. <laughs> it stared back. It went ISO. The ball careened off the rim. The abyss The abyss had zero assists in the fourth quarter of Arthur, uh, Arthur, Game 6. Arthur Miller agreed. He tweeted about the Crucible after the game. Yeah. yeah. I, I got the hottest of hot takes. In fact, it's a cool take. In fact, it's a uh, 50% better take than a regular take. Here explains the Warriors, why they won what they're doing that's so special. You ready? Three pointers are worth more than two. 
In fact, three-pointers, if you look at every other stat, three-pointers, by definition, are worth three points. Mm -hmm. Always. Every three-pointer is worth three points. Now, all the other stats that one can accumulate, two-pointers are always worth two points, and free throws are always worth one point. Now, sometimes a rebound is worth a point or two or not. Same thing. An assist is almost always worth two, but sometimes worth three. So as the Oklahoma City Thunder stuffed stat sheets and did really well and shot better from the field and had more blocks. The one thing they didn't do was shoot three-pointers. And it sounds crazy. Actually, maybe it sounds too stupid to even mention, but for, you know, 35 years, we didn't really understand how important it is that three-pointers are worth 50% more than two-pointers. And that's it. I think maybe I'm saying something slightly more profound than (laughs) they took the shot and made the shot that's worth more than other shots. But for all the analysis, if you're shooting three-pointers successfully, it blows every other thing that a basketball team can do out of the water, and that's what the Warriors did. And I was watching it through – yeah, I was watching it through the Josh perspective of is this a perversion of basketball? And it kind of was, and we could get into this. I mean, I was seeing your point more than ever because by the end – And when a team is down by eight or whatever with a minute left, you don't say to yourself, oh, this team has outplayed their opponent. But for so often, if you list all the basketball things, I think the Thunder did more good basketball things than the Warriors did. But what the Warriors did was that one thing called hit three-pointers. And I think the one thing that that people haven't done enough of was discount games three and four. Uh, Oklahoma City won by, what, 52 points combined. And that really inflated their statistical dominance um, over the course of the seven games. I read somewhere this morning that Oklahoma City had scored more field goals, had more free throws, had more assists. They did everything better statistically than those three-pointers, which, by the way, Golden State scored 84 points more than, uh, than, than, than Oklahoma City did. So the series was skewed a bit to my viewing. Um, those two games, I think you have to throw them out. Um, they were anomalies. <laughs> Clearly, the Thunder didn't. Um, Can we give the Thunder credit for like 10-point wins instead? Oh, yeah. You can't, you exactly. can't throw, yeah. Them yeah. Out. throw them out. As I say throw like, out 20 of those points. They still won. <laughs> and that, well, that would have been more statistically relevant if we had thrown out 20 of those points. But they were blowouts, and the, the, the Warriors basically gave up on those games. They were not statistically meaningful looking at the series in aggregate. I think the last three games were certainly meaningful, and the way the Warriors performed in the second half, particularly in games six and seven, was the most meaningful data point of all. You're getting into a deep uh, philosophical question there of what meaning really means. But I'm going to move past that. And a piece that I wrote for today, kind of dissecting that third quarter where the Warriors came back and turned a deficit into a lead. And it was one of the classic sequences that we've seen from the last two years where Curry and Thompson catch fire. The other team can't really do anything. And the Thunder were actually, to Mike's point, scoring during that sequence. Mm -hmm. Like, The shot with the highest degree of difficulty during this three-minute sequence where the Warriors made five three-pointers was a Kevin Durant fall away from the baseline where Iguodala was all over him. And it seemed like geometrically there was no way that the shot was going to go in. It went in. It was worth two and was immediately wiped off the board plus one like 10 seconds later. So as I was rewatching the sequence, I was thinking about hero ball and this idea that This is what cost the Thunder in game six, that they had zero assists in the fourth quarter of game six. And Westbrook 
and Durant reverted back to the Thunder's old ways. They didn't pass. They tried to win the game on their own, and they didn't win the game because they didn't involve their teammates. So the Warriors won Game 7 because their best players made all these three-pointers. And they were playing team basketball, but it was team basketball with the very simple intent of getting Curry and Thompson open. So setting screens, getting big men isolated on their best shooters on the perimeter, and then having them do one-on-one moves, you know, jab-stepping Steven Adams or Serge Ibaka or whoever to get an open three-pointer. And so I think when people use hero ball as a pejorative, it's often just used to like retroactively describe a game in which a good player missed a bunch of shots. The Warriors play team basketball, but they play it because they recognize that they have these guys who are the two greatest shooters maybe ever, and they just need to get them open to win. Right, and I saw a stat during the game that Curry was five of seven on isolation threes. Four of them have been were after a defensive switch, and I don't know whether all four of those were over Ibaka or Adams or Durant, but talk well, about <laughs> unlikely looking shots. I mean, you mentioned the Durant one. Everyone that Curry took over one of those seven foot guys, you think that's impossible. So Curry shot um, more than 200 more attempts than anyone had ever shot from three this year. It was like in the high 800s. And that's the brilliant thing about him is that even though you know he's going to shoot a three, he still surprises you. And he surprises the guys who are defending him. They know that the most likely thing that's going to happen is that Steph Curry is going to shoot a three-pointer over them. And he still manages to dribble and maneuver and hoist from like such improbable angles at improbable times. You're like, I can't believe he shot that. And I can't believe that it went in. I would say a couple things. One is one downfall of hero ball. Hero ball isn't a binary, right? There is hero ball where the person, the the exponent of hero ball is actually heroic. Let's look at Russell Westbrook. I don't think his game or his game strategy or even his, you know, we talk about decision making. He goes so fast. It must be hard to make decisions. I don't think it changed. I think that in the games where the Thunder did well, he executed. Is that maybe the technical word for it? But, you know, the heroism stuck. And in game seven, when he had a bad game, he was trying to do all those things and he just missed a couple shots. He was still faster than everyone. He was still, there was one sequence where he took a pretty awful pass and from an impossible angle, put it in off the glass. This was about when they were up maybe by seven points. But, you know, if we talk about the Thunder, uh, we talk about when either one of those two guys are off, it is true. They have almost no chance to win. And even though the big two on the Warriors are important, they have more options. And there were, there were games when Steph Curry didn't even do so well. You know, Steph Curry had 30. I think they showed that they were 13-0 when he scored above 30. And they did win game five where he had above 30 points. It wasn't a strong, you know, he, he was like in the 20s. And then he had a bunch of free throws down the stretch. And that's great. Great. I mean, I do think that Clay Thompson was the better player this series. The funny thing to me is that the whole story of this season, particularly if you look back to around when David Blatt was fired, the idea that the Warriors played this kind of brand of basketball that was both fun and kind of moral in a way that they had run off this record sequence of wins and they had won in the finals last year because they share the ball, because they pass it, because they play the right way. And the Cavs were this team that had star players 
and they were constantly bickering that you could see them on the sidelines yelling at each other and that they just kind of hadn't figured out how to play together. But if you actually look at this matchup, the Cavs are the team, and maybe it's unfair to you know f- go back a few months because the Cavs are playing qualitatively and quantitatively better basketball than they were at any other time since LeBron came back. But the Cavs are the team that's playing team basketball. LeBron James is the guy who does not play hero ball. He plays in service of his teammates. He drives mm-hmm. into the lane to find open teammates and will pass to an open teammate whenever a teammate is open, wherever a teammate is open. And I think he's the best passer in the NBA. Um, and he is happy to let Kyrie Irving score. Kyrie Irving is happy to let Kyrie Irving score. And to find Kevin Love and to J.R. Smith, whatever. That is like more, when you think of like the way the Spurs played and the kind of all-for-one, one-for-all thing that they were praised for. This is like way, way more Spurs-like than the way that the Warriors play, right? Well, I, I, I think that if there's a criticism of LeBron, it's that he is, you know, to quote, too unselfish. And then they say he wants to uh, – he, we think that he could turn it on and take over the game himself, although a couple times against the Raptors that didn't happen. I don't know. I don't know if the important thing or narrative is about which is the more moral or passy the ball around or beautiful type <laughs> game to watch. I think it's going to be amazing when both these teams combine for, you know, 83-point shots in one game. Maybe someone will say, wow, this is a weird kind of pinball we're watching. But I think the biggest thing about the series, I think the Cavs, maybe they weren't tested, so we didn't get to see them, you know, show dimensions that they didn't. Or maybe the dimension we saw was that every once in a while their defense is exposed. But the stuff that stymied the Warriors, and most of that stuff was the goodness of the Thunder, isn't that still present? I mean, aren't they still tired? They got untired? Like, I think the energy part of it, and if you go back to the last few weeks of the season, taking a lot out of them and the Steph injuries, they're not still there. So I think that's, I know they won three in a row, but I think all that stuff is still there. So I'm wondering about how that's going to play out in the finals. Well, the Cavs play have played fewer games than the Warriors. Uh, their best players are not hurt the way Steph has been injured, though. Jesus, the way the Cavs' best players were hurt last year. Were, were hurt last year. But, you know, Steph Curry looked pretty good last night. 36 points. Yeah, pretty good performance. Um, so, and the Cavs have been sitting around for a couple of extra days, which helps all of these athletes. Recovery is hugely important to how these guys perform, particularly after they've already played 98 or 99 or 100 games over the course of seven months. So those are factors, Mike. You're absolutely right. Well, I think that the main reason that the Warriors struggled so much against the Thunder was that the Thunder could quote unquote play small with guys like Kevin Durant and Serge Ibaka who are basically seven feet tall. Mm -hmm. And the Cavs' big guys are less agile. Like Tristan Thompson is not as agile. I mean, he's a great rebounder. He's agile around the basket, but he can't defend on the perimeter as well as Durant can or Ibaka can. And when the Thunder played big with Steven Adams and he had to defend on the perimeter, that didn't go so well for them in the third quarter. And so I think the matchup with the Thunder would have been better for the Cavs um, because I think Kevin Love is more playable against, you know, a bigger lineup. I don't really see who he's going to guard on the Warriors when the Warriors are playing their best lineup. I just think that like the long arms of the Cavs, like the long arms of Iman Shumpert and J.R. Smith are not going to bother 
the warrior shooters as much as the longer arms of Ibaka and Durant. Yeah, and I think that uh, as we talked to uh, Ethan Sherwood Strauss, the uh, fear of the height of the Thunder, not only the reality of it, but the fear of it, I think, made Kerr make some weird defensive uh, substitutions and change his game plan, and you take that away, the overreacting, since they don't have the length, the uh, Cavs don't, you won't get the overreaction to the length. In other words, I think the Warriors are going into the series saying, we get to be more pure warrior basketball, Mm -hmm. the basketball basketball we want to be. Although we said that about pace in the Thunder series, you know, oh, if the pace is high, it favors the Warriors. That didn't necessarily turn out to be the case. It's going to come down to, right? I mean, this might be the equivalent of saying it all comes down to turnovers, but both of these teams are three-point maniacs and whichever one is more successfully maniacal will have the edge. Well, I think you undersell the Cavs' versatility a little bit because they were setting all those like crazy three-point records against the Hawks and then against the Raptors. They did. LeBron was dominant in the paint, and they attacked a team that they perceived as weaker on the interior or that was trying to take away the three-pointer. And so they just, to have a cliche off with you, they just took what the defense gave them. And so I think that in this series, you're they're going to have to be three-point maniacal just because I think the Warriors are the better team. But, you know, I wouldn't shock me if they had a game in the series where they weren't awesome from three and still could score on the inside and steal one. But isn't that one of the risks that the Cavaliers have in this matchup? I mean, the part of the game where the Thunder clearly had an advantage was on the glass, out-rebounding them, particularly on offense and scoring more uh, second-chance points than than the Warriors were able to. If that's neutralized and you're talking about LeBron versus the the Warriors plus both teams' relative three-point shooting abilities, I don't see how the Cavaliers come out with anything close to an advantage. Today's episode of Hang Up and Listen is supported by Me Undies. Whether you're wearing a suit or sweats, you spend almost 24 hours a day in your underwear. But instead of making a statement like Superman's tights under his everyday clothes, your underwear is probably pretty boring. Me Undies is here to change that. Every pair is made from sustainably sourced Modell, a fabric that's twice as soft as cotton. Nothing can describe the fit and feel of MeUndies, but once you try them on, you'll understand why they're called the world's most comfortable underwear. And if you don't love your first pair, they're free, no questions asked. MeUndies has dozens of styles and limited edition prints to help you make a statement with your underwear, whether anyone can see them or not. Shipping is free in the U.S. and Canada, and you can save up to $8 a pair with the MeUndies subscription plan. Get the subscription or a single pair and get 20% off your first order when you go to MeUndies.com slash hangup. That's MeUndies.com slash hangup for 20% off your first order. MeUndies.com slash hangup. Last week, Baylor University released an independent report that it had commissioned from the well-named law firm of Pepper Hamilton. And that report showed that the school and particularly the football program had consistently mishandled sexual assault charges against uh, its players for years. As a consequence of this report, Ken Starr, yes, that Ken Starr, the very one and only Ken Starr, was demoted. Uh, Art Bryles, the football coach, was let go. And the athletic director has also resigned. I'm not sure, Stefan, whether to be surprised that as a consequence of this report, the football program was dismantled as it should have been. I do think we can get a little bit 
cynical and say this happens at every school. No, like what happened at Baylor was disgusting and egregious. And even by the standards of how schools with big time athletic programs deal with sexual assault, it was like several step standard deviations beyond. And yet it, I was kind of surprised. And that's kind of sad that I was like, what do you make of how this all played out? I think it was fairly predictable. I, the the criminal convictions of what two football players on top of other allegations on top of a stream of reports of cover-ups by the athletic department and the football staff made it inevitable that, you know, Baylor had to take some strong action. But look, the strong action that they took is the kind of strong action you would predict. I mean, they released a not even a report, they released sort of a document that um, highlighted or, or, or generalized about the actions that occurred and who committed them and the steps that would be taken without really naming any names, without specifying what sorts of indiscretions were committed. What, what Art Browse knew and, and when, and he, knew when it. he knew it. And who on his staff knew it and who in the athletic department covered up um, the behavior of, of the university and how high up in the administrative ranks it went. I mean, Ken Starr wasn't fired. He was shunted over to be chancellor rather than have day-to-day -day operations of the university. The athletic director is always someone that just takes the fall because he's usually not a big name. And the football coach was a, an easy person to, to sell out as well. Um, and absolutely should have been fired and sold out here. But, you know, this is a very careful response. I mean, the, the more drastic response is to say that we have a deeply flawed way of operating our biggest sport, and those flaws reflect a sexism and, an, and a lack of oversight about the behavior of these young people. Um, and... You know, what's the best reaction to that? Well, maybe you don't have a football team. Maybe the death penalty is the right way for schools to respond to something as bad as this. Yeah, well, that's only if uh, Baylor stood for anything other than, you know, being a college and having a football team. Oh, wait, they're a almost fundamentalist Christian college. Yes. They didn't allow dancing until the 1980s, and they didn't allow the commingling of the sexes until, I don't know, within the decade. And so to, I mean, there's no reason why any school should count, countenance this, but for Baylor, for whom Ken Starr with his puritanical uh, inquisition against Bill Clinton was actually a selling point, you know, for Baylor to allow it just lays bare the hypocrisy. Now, I know there are some within the Baylor community, as it were, that do say this, and we're never that comfortable with football, but I think in the hierarchy of uh, especially Texas schools, you have God, you have the football coach, and you have college. And I don't know. I mean, that's the, that's the order that you give it lip service, but that not that might not even be the order that actually is the lived experience. Can we just read Baylor's mission statement here? The mission of Baylor <laughs> University is to educate men and women for worldwide leadership and service by integrating academic excellence and Christian commitment within a caring community. They, they discouraged women who were assaulted from filing complaints. They discouraged investigations of potential criminal behavior. As Diana Moskovitz points out in, in a good piece on Deadspin, 
Baylor has a poor record of enforcing and applying Title IX guidelines at the university. I think they didn't have a Title IX coordinator for a while. And their opposition to Title IX, part of it rooted in its Christian past, goes back to the 1970s when the law was enacted. So it's applying Title IX not just to how many men's sports and women's sports there are, how many opportunities there are, but to these other requirements about how federally funded institutions enforce the broader guidelines in Title IX that Baylor has fallen down on. But they also have had issues about giving equal opportunity to women in sports uh, over, over the last few decades. So Art Bryles is not just a great football coach at a school that takes football very seriously. If we look at the history of the school and its program, he's way more important than that. He is the one who made Baylor into mm-hmm. a major football program. They in a rose, very short time. They rose to number two in the nation last year. And this was a school that, I guess it's sort of similar to what Bill Snyder did at Kansas State. Like he took a school that was shorthand for bad at football and made them into one of the country's best programs. And he did it in a state where being good at football is maybe the most important thing. He did it to such a degree that they were able to get a enormous multi-million dollars new stadium built. And so the firing, the letting go of Art Bryles, it wasn't just like the firing of a coach who was a good coach at a good program. This was the firing of a coach who made, he like made Baylor famous, like even beyond sports, like more broadly. He was the one who made RG3 into RG3 when RG3 was RG3. Like he won the, helped RG3 win the Heisman Trophy. He turned this school into um, a school that was on ESPN every week and that was talked about and was in the sports page. And so the, I, I guess that's getting back to my introduction. Like they basically had to acknowledge that this was all built on just horrible, unethical behavior. It, you know, and it discredits everything that was done there and reveals just how shallow and empty it was. And the other point that I wanted to make is, I think it's fair to say this about Florida State, um, that the press around, you know, in Tallahassee and that they didn't do a very good job covering what was going on with Jameis Winston and with, you know, other other alleged criminality in that program. And that that is kind of a problem in a lot of these big schools that aren't in, you know, quote unquote, big athletic schools that aren't in big markets and don't have a well-developed kind of investigative media. And in this case, you know, the Texas Monthly, Jessica Luther and Dan Solomon wrote a piece, Silence at Baylor, that's an incredible work of journalism that came out in 2015. ESPN Outside the Lines did a piece that kind of, I I mean, maybe they were doing the investigation before that piece came out, but I think in the kind of the popular thought, it basically just laid bare everything that was going on in Baylor. Um, so just the importance of journalism and good journalists caring about and looking into what goes on at these schools. 
Okay, so here are some questions I have. Will Art Bryles get another job? Yes, of course, because he's a bona fide offensive genius, perhaps a moral idiot. Actually, we could even discuss that. I think he was mainly typical of a coach who didn't want to know, and he was accepting guys on his team that he thought could help him and thought that, you know, you could always tell yourself we're giving the kid another chance. He did no due diligence and he endangered the college community. But of course he'll get another job. Maybe he'll ha he'll it'll either be a step down or it'll just be an offensive coordinator. He'll take some team, he'll improve the offense. In 2 years he'll be a head coach. There is no question about that. But do you think the institution of the offensive genius um at all correlates to being a moral idiot. And I only ask that because Mike Leach has endorsed Donald Trump and seems to, if you look at his history, he seems to be a little bit of a moral idiot also with how he treats kids. And I'm sure we could come up with a third example for the rule of three, but perhaps there is something about being so, you know, obsessed with uh, where the flanker goes in the shotgun that you can't really uh, think about the actual uh, morality of these students that you're charged to deal with. Well, you're not thinking about the morality of the students you're charged to deal with because these guys are paid $5 million a year to do one thing, and that is to create a football team that will go 50 and 15 when it went whatever and whatever in the previous five years. And that's what Art Bryles did um, and helped the university get to a point where you can build a $260 million stadium. But the one thing I'd like to add here is when we talk about Baylor, the institution and sports, it, it wasn't just football. I mean, this is a this is a school that has had sort of one unbelievable story after another, one horrific sort of unconscionable set of behaviors um, over the last 10, 12 years. I mean, there was the, the, the Dennehy murder of the basketball player and Dave Bliss, the coach, with the giant cover-up there and tape recordings and criminal convictions. Um, you have, Can I stop for a second yeah. there and just Do we need to ruminate on how amazingly horrible that situation was? So the basketball coach then, Dave Bliss, had paid $7,000 to Dennehy, the player, who was then murdered by another player and then framed – the player who he had given the illegal payments to mm -hmm. as a drug dealer to hide the fact that a player who had been murdered, he had given uh, illicit payments to. No. But he, please continue. <laughs> Dave Bliss got another job too. Um, there was a case of a basketball recruit from Columbia whom Baylor allegedly tried to get deported if he – if he didn't attend the university, he wound up at Indiana. He ended up leaving Indiana. Um, there was the women's basketball coach who discouraged Brittany Griner from discussing her sexuality publicly. Nice behavior there. And then I, I came across this one. Somebody had uh, tweeted about uh, two Baylor student athletes. And I, I looked up the story. Two Baylor student athletes were arrested by Waco police last month and charged with animal cruelty after they allegedly shot, decapitated, and skinned a stray cat named Queso. That was in 2001. Oh, Jesus. But that doesn't really rise to the levels of these other transgressions. Just throwing it in there. Yeah. So so people are idiots, but then there's the Correct. school, what the school does, what the institution does. And in Josh's intro, I think there was a phrase, Josh, where you said, you know, in the history of uh, college sports, and this is just one of them. And I thought you were going to reference, I mean, it's not as bad as the most horrific thing ever to happen in college sports, which is the Baylor murder case. Mm -hmm. Oh, wait, that happened in Baylor, too. <laughs> I don't... That's the, that, that is the worst thing to happen. How does it compare to Penn State? It's, it's worse because people are dead. And, and Joe Paterno, no, wait, I mean, well, I, you know. Sorry, sorry. I meant, I meant the, this current set of facts. How does it compare to Penn State? 
It's a, it's a weird thing because obviously Joe Paterno, we have all the debate about how much he knew and when he knew it, but he wasn't allowing the people on his team. He wasn't saying yes to people on his team who should never been in the community. It was a coach that he could have rooted out, right? As opposed to welcoming a people in. And, and then we're not sure how much he knew, although there's pretty much amount of evidence that he should have known. Whereas with Bryles, we're sure. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess maybe we'll know more if the full report that Baylor commissioned uh, is released. But well, it gets know. written even from what I read that they didn't really write a full report. They just wrote these this 13-page summary of findings. I mean, the most damning individual item on this list is um, the allegation that a woman who had been raped by this guy, Tevin Elliott, who ended up going to prison for 20 years – went to, uh, you know, a woman at Baylor to report it. And she's, the woman said, like, that you're the sixth person to come with a, a claim against this guy and nothing had been done about it. I mean, that suggests, I mean, that's like Penn State levels of administrative kind of unfeeling and like letting a dangerous predator stay, at, you know, in the university because – you know, he happened to have a position with the football team. I mean, I don't see any other way to like look at that or gloss that. <laughs> and yeah, and to sum up, a lot of this comes down to this culture in in college sports, particularly, but also in professional sports, obviously, of this notion of giving people second chances. You know, Nick Saban talked about this notion of second chances and helping people grow when he took a player from Georgia, a Jonathan Taylor, who had been accused of uh, of domestic violence. And you know, that's a hard point to argue, right? We 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 want in society to help particularly young people. Um, the problem becomes that when we equate football as some sort of moral force, that football is going to help people overcome their pasts and it is a place for them to grow as individuals, when in fact, all these coaches care about is getting an athlete who's going to help them win. Well, this guy, Sam Awachu, who transferred from Boise, Boise State, State to Baylor, and that was the lead of the Jessica Luther and Dan Solomon piece, is that you had a coach, Phil Bennett, who was briefly named the interim coach, the uh, successor to Art Bryles, but was then replaced by Jim Grubb of Wake Forest. There was this luncheon, and Bennett tells this crowd of Baylor boosters that this great you know, defensive player from Boise State, Sam Awachu, is going to be eligible to play in the fall. And you know, meanwhile, this guy is accused of violence against women at Boise State, was later uh, accused of sexual assault and convicted of it that he perpetrated at Baylor. And the coach is just putting this kind of smiley, happy story, and it just turns into a case of like, is this guy going to be eligible to play? When in fact, they had been briefed by people at Boise State that the charges against him were serious. And the reason for his dismissal, dismissal from that school was were these charges, these allegations. You know what? I, I just had this idea. Maybe we should – I don't know who it would be. Uh, this could be uh, an exercise in journalism. But we should come up with a unified theory of what are the acceptable second chances because every college coach is going to be incentivized to trot out that phrase and to either earnestly or perhaps cynically play upon our um, – 
you know, better nature and, of course, the best interest of his football team. So where's the line? It used to be, you know, with the NFL, they used to say things like red flags or brushes with the law. But I've seen articulated that when a draft prospect, for instance, includes violence against women, that's a real red flag. And when the draft prospect, for instance, has a marijuana that maybe doesn't include a gas mask, that's a different kind of red flag. So someone possibly in conjunction with actual coaches, could talk about when are the second chances a yellow flag, when are they a red flag, and when are they a no-go. Today's episode is supported by Ritani. If you're thinking of popping the question, then you should definitely check out Ritani. There is no simpler way to get the ring of your dreams. All of their rings are handcrafted in New York. Shop online and they'll ship overnight to you or a Ritani jeweler close to you. You design a ring, they handcraft it, and you see it in-store for free. Plus, they offer no-hassle returns. It's that easy. She'll love the ring, and you'll feel great about giving it to her. And this month, they're giving away a diamond. Just visit ritani.com slash hangup today for the free diamond giveaway. On Saturday in Milan, Real Madrid beat Atletico Madrid on penalties to win its 11th European Cup title. And somehow it all just seemed like an excuse for Cristiano Ronaldo to take off his shirt. Uh, Ronaldo made the penalty to win the game, and then he revealed his rippling bare torso to the delight of few and to the disdain of very many. Joining us now to discuss the game and uh, Ronaldo's uh, musculature is Ken Early of the Irish Times and the Second Captains podcast. How are you, Ken? Good, Josh. How are you? Good. So you're joining us from a park in Cork. I want to set the scene for the listeners. Yeah, yeah. That's a very nice day here in Cork. We're all getting ready for to watch uh, Ireland against Belarus uh, a little later on. So a thrilling game in prospect. <laughs> so what was the atmosphere like at the San Siro and Milan? I mean, this is the biggest game and the biggest sport in the world with the biggest star, I mean, I guess maybe second only to Messi. What is kind of the crowd reaction to Ronaldo throughout the game? Well, um, a little bit of bewilderment of how badly he was playing, I guess. I mean, the atmosphere at the San Siro was absolutely incredible. I mean, it's a beautiful stadium, something like 80 meters tall. It's just an absolutely magnificent building, uh, big, steep slopes of stands. It's impossible to imagine a better setting for uh, I'm sure Cristiano, but he didn't really do a lot in the game at all. I mean, he's clearly not been fit. Uh, Zinedine Zidane, the Real Madrid coach, insisted afterwards uh, that, no, he's, he's fully fit. He, you know, he, he absolutely gave it everything out there, which you know, I don't think is in doubt. He worked very hard, but he hadn't really been fit for a month, according to the Spanish journalists who'd been, who'd been covering. You know, he had some kind of muscular problem in his thigh, similar to what happened in the 2014 season when he also won the Champions League of the last game of the season, but, but didn't play very well because, you know, play that many games, you start to develop problems, you, you continue to play every game, and you arrive at the end of the season in, in a pretty bad state. So he didn't do a lot in the game. It's reported in the Spanish media today, actually, that he was telling his teammates before the penalty shootout, I'm dead, you know, my legs are gone, I'm, I'm completely dead. Uh, and their speculation was that he left himself to take the last penalty because maybe he was hoping he wouldn't have to actually take one. But as it turned out, being last in the, uh, in the running order, Worked out very, very well indeed. 
Uh, we all know that he put himself last in the penalties so that he could have the opportunity to take off his shirt and be the hero. Now, let's be clear, though, Ken, about your own uh, predilections here toward uh, toward Mr. Ronaldo. I'm just going to read from your column post-game. Uh, Ronaldo had mm-hmm. endured a personal nightmare made more agonizing by his acute awareness that this final, like every final, was about him. Ronaldo was himself the first spectator at the drama of Ronaldo, stealing little glances up at the stadium's big screen to see himself after almost every action. He is so compulsively mesmerized by the spectacle of himself that you sometimes wonder how he also can concentrate on the game. Yeah, it's pretty impressive multitasking. Um, (laughs) um, he, he, He does almost seem to be sort of outside himself, you know, almost watching uh, himself, I find. I mean, I suppose that's kind of the definition of, of narcissism in a way. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's, it's really all that he cares about. I mean, I, you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily blame him for that. That's just kind of the way he is. There's maybe a bit of arrested development uh, going on with, mm-hmm. with uh, Ronaldo. Since he was 17 or 18, he's been kind of different from everybody else. Well, you know, he's been different from everyone else since he was a kid, but he's been treated differently by the world. He's been a superstar. You know, he's been a god. Going to warp you a little bit, I suppose. And I think you also have to take into account the reaction of everybody else to Ronaldo. One of the things I remember, um, which kind of made an impression on me at the time, was during the World Cup in Brazil, Portugal played Germany. Germany beat them 4 0. It was pretty embarrassing. Uh, that was another game in which Ronaldo wasn't fit. Uh, but obviously, he has to play anyway. You know, he's, he's, he, doesn't, he doesn't not play just because he's injured. And I remember being in the airport in Salvador after that game. We were all in this airport terminal, which is really, really packed, really hot, sweaty. Everyone is crammed in there waiting for these kind of chaotic, uh, this Brazilian airport to uh, disgorge everybody onto the planes. And uh, suddenly I remember there was this kind of commotion. And it was like people were like shouting and, you know, screaming. Uh, and you first, you're going, what's going on here? Looking around and I could see this sort of mass of people moving along. And it turned out that there was a wall Essentially, this wall of the terminal was like a clear plastic, actually a division, sort of uh, cordoning off an adjacent corridor. And down this corridor was walking Cristiano Ronaldo, all by himself. Uh, he's wearing his, his flight outfit. He's like shorts, uh, flight socks pulled right up, baseball cap on backwards, uh, bag on his, on his back, obviously the, the two straps. He looked kind of like a schoolboy, like a giant, muscular, Adonis-like schoolboy walking down this corridor to see the reaction of the people. I mean, people are just banging, banging, banging on this clear plastic divisor, shouting, you know, Ronaldo, Ronaldo. And everyone obviously has their phones out, and he just keeps walking. You know, he's not really looking at the people, he just keeps walking. And the people start to get annoyed, because <laughs> you know, they, they obviously wanted to stop and, and, and so they can take pictures, you know, or whatever. Ronaldo just wants to sort of get, get away from this and get to his plane. So people start banging on the thing and, and laughing, and shouting, Messi, Messi, uh, Tiamo Messi, Tiamo Messi. And, you know, he's, he kind of looks a little bit sad and walks on. And eventually his sort of area widens out into a kind of hallway and he's able to sort of walk diagonally away and sort of disappear. And I just was so amazed at the reaction of the people. Now, you should, maybe you shouldn't be amazed. Ronaldo's one of the most famous men in the world. Uh, people get excited when they see someone really famous, but they weren't treating him like a human being. You know, it was, it was totally disrespectful. It was like... Uh, it was like they'd seen a unicorn. You know, it was like it was kind of like, oh, look, it was like children in a zoo throwing, you know, trying to throw stuff at the animals to get their attention. <laughs> that, uh, I think that if you're Ronaldo and that's the way that your world is, this is the kind of crazy way people react whenever they see you. 
There is something, like, unreal about him. The way he looks, he looks like a cartoon character. Like, he looks like something that someone would draw if you told them to draw, like, (laughs) the most handsome person in the world. Yeah, absolutely. He's uh, like a a kind of computer game, you know, character. Just these utterly ridiculous computer-generated physique. It's no wonder that he's so impressed by it. I mean, he gets up, he looks at it every morning in the mirror, thinks, wow, you know, I'm looking good again today. Um, he, takes great, he takes great pride in it. It's what makes him so exceptional, really, is his, is his physical, uh, his power. I mean, compare him to, you know, Messi, you know? I mean, there's just no comparison there. You know, Messi wouldn't stand out on the beach. This guy is the best footballer in the world, and he looks, you know, really quite average. Um, whereas Ronaldo, you know, Ronaldo appeared on the beach, and, well, we know what would happen, you know? Um, but, you know, Messi, for instance, he was still sort of eating those... Uh, Apparently he likes it. He likes a bit of uh, Milanese. You know, you kind of this breaded meat with cheese. You know, this is like his. He likes to eat that stuff. Now, obviously, it's not the. It's not exactly um, the greatest fuel an athlete can consume. But Messi was still merrily eating all this stuff till about the age of twenty-five. When, when eventually he sort of yielded to the opinion of the nutritionists and you know doctors and so on. You really shouldn't be eating that. Can you maybe try and eat some vegetables from time to time? You know, your your health is important to your uh, you know performance. Eventually, he decided, he started to do that. Ronaldo has been working like a, a maniac on his fitness, on his on his physique, his power, uh, ever since he was you know ever since he was literally at 12, 12 years old, um, and this is the result of you know two decades of uh, of um, you know the most ambitious and obsessive footballer in the world. Um, this is uh, you know this is what can be done. So in trying to figure out why we hate Ronaldo, I analogized it to a couple of uh, players that I'm familiar with, Derek Jeter and A-Rod. He's the most like Alex Rodriguez, Ronaldo is. He is good-looking. He thinks he's good-looking. A-Rod didn't go so far as to tell his brother to open an A-Rod museum, though you could see that that's the sort of thing he'd do. Ronaldo did that. But I think the big difference – so what about Jeter? Jeter is good-looking. Jeter has high-profile girlfriends. You know, Ronaldo went out with Paris. Paris Hilton or whatever. I think the big difference is playing is toughness, physical toughness and playing in pain and playing and gutting it out and giving and getting credit for gutting it out. Um, and, you know, the other football soccer comparison is Beckham. There's a lot of overlap between Beckham and Ronaldo, yet Beckham doesn't get the sort of crap that Ronaldo does. And I sometimes wonder, is it because we don't know too many native Portuguese speakers to stick up for Ronaldo to say, here's the dimensions of him that you don't get? I, I do think I'm bending over backwards. I do think that he is a pretty boy who hasn't shown the physical toughness that the other pretty boys who get a pass or who are more beloved than Ronaldo get? Well, I would dispute, I would actually dispute the, the suggestion that he doesn't show physical toughness. I think he's, he shows incredible physical toughness. Um, I mean, maybe you're, you're referring to you know, his tendency to, to dive or exaggerate contact, but really that's, that's not particular to him. That's just, just what, sort of what a lot of players do. I mean, if you play in the Spanish League, that's, you know, it's just what you do. It, it would be ridiculous. I mean, why would you, why would you try to disguise the impact of a foul? You know, you exaggerate that. I do think that he's tough, though. I mean, just the fact that he plays injured all the time. Um, some players would say, "Well, no, I'm not fit. You know, I can't do it." Ronaldo says, "Of course, you know, I'm going to ignore this injury. I'll play." I think he's tough. Um, but as to why he isn't liked, I mean, <laughs> I think we also have to mention that actually, this is, this is you know, huge. I mean, this is, isn't he the most popular person on Facebook in the world? Isn't he? 
He's, Everybody who's like on Facebook million. sucks, though, Ken. People, people who like <laughs> people, people who like people on Facebook are just the worst people on earth. Come on, we all we know that. Duck. There's, there's hundreds. Of, there's like a hundred million. I think he's got sixty million <laughs> followers on Instagram or something insane. Um, you know, he is he is extremely popular. There are a lot of people who love Cristiano Ronaldo. There's a lot of people I think who who don't like him. Um, and Ronaldo's explanation is always that those people are jealous of him because they, right. you know, and he did a quote from, you know, I'm rich, I'm, I'm beautiful, uh, I'm successful. Obviously, these people hate me. Um, <laughs> and I'm sure, actually, for a lot of, the, for a lot of, uh, in a lot of cases, that's probably correct. But I think the thing that people don't like about him, people who don't like him, were people, you know, they, uh, and it, it comes back, I suppose, to this rivalry with Lionel Messi and why. A lot of people will say there's, there's actually no comparison between these players. It's because of that sort of uh, detachment from everyone else. It's like this total egotism or solipsism of Ronaldo uh, compared to Lino Messi, a player of at least equal and probably, I would say, greater talent, who somehow is able to also understand that he is part of a team that there's 10 other players on the team, that it's not actually all just about him, that sometimes he can be the guy who helps others uh, to get the glory. Cristiano Ronaldo was never happy with that. I mean, go back to that 2014 Champions League final. <laughs> I, I remember <laughs> I remember it was uh, Real Madrid equalized one all uh, in the last minute uh, of the of the 90s. So it went to extra time. Uh, Real Madrid attacking, attacking. Remember I was saying Ronaldo not playing very well, not really able to run, not really involved in the game. What happened was that Angel Di Maria went down the left, uh, put over a ball, Garrett Bale, right to the far post, heads it in, 2-1. Everybody goes nuts. All the Real Madrid fans, all the players, everybody runs down to this big celebration huddle in the, in the corner. Everyone's absolutely crazy. Ronaldo, standing in the center circle, he's almost like, put the ball back. It's like, all right, uh, let's get this game going again because I still haven't scored in the game and really, I can't celebrate until that happens. Uh, you know, it was just a perfect example of, of like, you know, your team is winning. But another guy actually just got the glory. So for Ronaldo, that was almost as sickening as if Atletico <laughs> had scored the goal. And a lot of people just don't like that. Uh, Ronaldo is sort of epitomizes a celebrity. I mean, we are drawn to a celebrity, but we respect authenticity. Messi looks more authentic. Messi looks like a human being. Uh, Ronaldo does not. Ronaldo looks like an avatar. Ronaldo is the, you know, Jessica Rabbit of international football. Mm. Um <laughs> and when we also resent his preening, the bulge in his statue, his dating history, the way he flexes and sulks and dives, um, the the petty behavior, the, like the kind you just cited on the field. And, and I didn't realize you were jealous of the bulge in his statue, Stefan. That's very that's well, it very makes interesting. Him, it does make him kind of it does make him kind of like a unicorn. Um, so the the resentment is what we don't like. We don't. It's not that we don't appreciate his gifts as a footballer. It's that he looks like a fake footballer. He looks like this. <laughs> he looks like this manufactured footballer. And yet he produces in big games. He produces like, in in droves. I mean, it's hard to to articulate whether his desire to score more goals than anybody is because it'll help his team win or because he needs to score more goals than anybody, but he does it. Yeah, right. That's the thing that I, that fascinates me so much about him, Ken, is that usually there's a moral kind of component to this where you would think the messy type player is going to win the cups in the end. And he's, his style of play is going to be proven to be the one true virtuous 
But Ronaldo wins, and it's partly because he's on the like team that spends the most on players, and there's not anything particularly moral on that. But he mm. he made the the penalty. Like he he doesn't produce in every game, but he it's it's not like he's a choker. You know, he scores really important goals that help his team win. Well, he's just got an insane series of records. I mean, he's, I think, the top scorer in the history mm-hmm. of European club football. Right. You know, that, that's European football Champions League and, and Europa League European competition. Top scorer in the history of Real Madrid in much fewer games than some of the names on the list behind him. Um, he scored more than 50 goals six seasons in a row, which is just completely insane. You know, it's just not something that anybody would have believed could be done. I appreciate what you're saying about Real Madrid being a team that Real Madrid have got a lot of great players. They've always got great players. They spend big money. But Ronaldo is above all of those players. He's the best one. The next best player in the world that Real Madrid signed when, whenever Ronaldo's gone is almost certainly not going to be as good as him. <laughs> There's just, just something slightly unrelatable about all this success. I mean, he's a strange kind of guy. You know, he almost reminds me of Michael Jackson in a way. This kind of seclusion. I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen the... There was a Cristiano Ronaldo movie released last year, like an authorized documentary sort of look at the world of Ronaldo. Um, Attempting to humanize him, right? Yeah, but the weird thing about it was that it actually dehumanized him. (laughs) Even though this is like the official version that his sort of people wanted to put out there, it just left you afterwards feeling, wow, this this is weirder than I thought. You know, Ronaldo living in this huge house that kind of looks like a modern art gallery a lot of it is kind of him lifting weights in front of mirrors, you know, while his, while his kid uh, is running around, you know, obviously Ronaldo Jr. is running around um, kind of copying him and also flexing his muscles. And what you really actually get a sense of is this, 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 this detachment from the world. And the only person who's mediating all of his interactions with the world, really, is his agent, George Mendes. Uh, Mendes is a very powerful figure in, in European football, primarily because of his association with, with guys like uh, Ronaldo but you kind of get a sense of how Mendes holds such sway over Ronaldo. There's one really interesting scene where it's like after a game, back at Ronaldo's house, they're having dinner, and Mendes gets up sort of after the dinner. He, he appears to have drunk quite a lot of wine, actually. Uh, he drains his glass, gets up, uh, says, you know, first of all to the brother, oh, you know, congratulations on getting over your dark times in the past. You know, the brother had a bit of a drug problem in the past, but now he's, he's in good shape. You, the mother, the mother that I would have had, if I hadn't had the mother I had, he says to Ronaldo's mother, and then, and then you, my special son, he says to Ronaldo, Ronaldo's father died when Ronaldo was 20. It's obviously a bit of a, a hole in Ronaldo's emotional life, I guess, uh, his, whole, his whole relationship with his father and his father's premature death. But Mendes is my special son, and then proceeds to launch the most incredible sort of series of, he's like, this man, it, it gives me such pride to fight for you. Every day I fight for you, but no matter how hard I fight, it couldn't possibly be enough. You're worth twice that. You're the greatest footballer in the world. You're the greatest sportsman in the world. Soon the whole world will see. Nobody will be able to deny. You are the greatest sportsman in history. There's this amazing, amazing tirade. You know, he's, he's sort of pounding his fists together and, and pumping his arms and, and looking into Ronaldo's eyes and Ronaldo's just sort of staring down at this sort of Oh, you know, he, he, you can see how much he loves this. This is what he hears from the only person, the only person really who he, he kind of deals with. Like, oh, he's either training, playing, or he's, he's in this huge house. And George Mendes is his, his whole link to the outside. And you can hear what 
you can hear the sort of account of reality that he gets from Mendes. I mean, how much can he be blamed for the way he is? I, I don't know. I, it's, it's difficult. But I mean, you have to, I suppose, appreciate the, the peculiarities of his situation. So, Ken, we've got the European Championships coming up. What can we look for next in the fields of Ronaldo hatred studies? <laughs> um, well, Ronaldo is obviously with Portugal, who aren't that good at the moment. I mean, as he says in the movie, you know, if we had three Cristiano Ronaldos, maybe you know, we'd be a better team. But we've only got one, so it's difficult. You know, he, he's he's been magnificent for Portugal, I think, as he has been for all of his teams. It's just that um, I wouldn't expect really too much from him uh, this time around, just because the condition that he was in the Champions League final was obviously not good. Tournament starts, you know, in, what, 10 days? He doesn't really have that much time to get fit. He's, he's missing the, they're playing a friendly against England, which he's kind of sitting out. I'm sure he'll be there. I'm sure he'll be playing. I don't know if it's going to, if he's going to be at his best, but you know, he's still one of the, you know, probably he's, he's probably the greatest European footballer of all time. You know, we can probably say that about Ronaldo at this stage, the greatest European player of all time. Um, and as such, I don't think anyone's going to be, uh, underestimating the impact he, he, he could possibly make. All right, well, let's end it there. Ken Early um, writes for the Irish Times, and he is one of the hosts of the Second Captains podcast. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, guys. Hey, I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. We're the hosts of Film Spotting, a film talk podcast that's about as old as the word podcast. That's true. We may have been around for a while, but we're excited to be a new addition to the Panoply Network. Since 2005, we've given in-depth reviews to films new and old. The new Richard Linklater one week, a sacred cow review of Ridley Scott's Alien the Next. Exactly. Plus the weekly top five. Like top five Richard Linklater scenes or top five films of 1989. What are you? I'm Batman. Or the time we shared the top five movie-related tattoos that we'd actually get. I'm still thinking about a Team Zissou tat. You'll never do it. We also do regular film spotting marathons devoted to filmmakers or genres or regions that are blind spots in our ongoing movie educations. Plus, Massacre Theater, where we make a mess of a well-known script, all so some listener can win a t-shirt. It's all part of the fun on film spotting. You can subscribe in iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, now it's time for After Balls. And Stefan and I are both looking at this article from The Independent about Cristiano Ronaldo's museum. I had to scroll down to – it's a listing of the different items there. It includes a framed certificate from Now Sports. simply says, Perfection, Mr. Cristiano Ronaldo, 2010. I like that there's a date on it. There are photographs of Ronaldo as a child. It's this. A couple of pensioners from Harrogate – Pose for an interactive portrait with Ronaldo, which will be posted on the museum's Facebook page later that day. This seems like a place that you need to go with your children, Mike. Oh, yeah, definitely. I hope that it's uh, part of the museum pass that we could also get, you know, the Lionel Messi Aquarium as well. <laughs> this is, so it's the Museu CR7. It's on Rua Princesa Dona Amelia in Funchal, Madeira, Portugal. CR7. I think let's keep it simple. Let's keep it focused on the man himself. Stefan, what is your CR7? I haven't mentioned this on the podcast yet, Josh, but as you know, I'm working on a new book. It is based on that piece I wrote for Slate last year about Merriam-Webster and the future of the dictionary. 
as with the two books that Josh introduces me with every week at the top of this show, I'm doing the participatory journalism thing again. I am working as a lexicographer for Merriam-Webster, which means I'm writing definitions for its unabridged dictionary, and that has been a lot of fun. To answer the most obvious question, yes, I am trying hard to get Sportocrat into the dictionary. I've written a definition. My editor has it. It's possible one of the supporting quotations for the word was written by Josh and another one by me. I won't ask you to send emails lobbying for the inclusion of Sportocrat, but do cross your fingers. I'm working on correcting other major lexicographic oversights too. Decleat, Slewfoot, Slobberknocker, Pickleball, Josh's Bubble Butt. I think Bubble Butt is worthy. My personal Bubble Butt. I am working also on Hot Take. Mike, you talked about Hot Takes at the top of the show. Totally coincidental yeah. that I'm talking about the hot take, the official hot take. The hot take that we all love to hate appears to be only a few years old. There were some tweets in 2012, a first entry that I found in Nexus in 2013. But the new usage totally surpasses the old, the old being an exciting new interpretation of something like a hot take on paella or a hot take uh, in a Dave Brubeck number. Hot take is meeting two important criteria for dictionary entry. One, its use in mainstream media is fairly high. And two, for better or worse, it is demonstrating staying power. Here is President Obama using hot take in a commencement address at Howard University last month. So let me begin with what may sound like a controversial statement. A hot take. <laughs> Obama gets it right. In drafting my definition of hot take, I wrote down a lot of words that I might use in the definiens. That's the definition part of the definition. Here are some of them. Sensational, provocative, exaggerated, moralistic, obvious, simplistic, antagonistic, extreme, ungrounded, broad, outrageous, attention, deliberate. I also wrote down usually used sarcastically or derisively or formed quickly or instantly. Now, one of the challenges of defining is cramming a lot of complicated ideas into a concise package that reflects how a word is used in speech or writing and only that, descriptive, not prescriptive. Um, so I searched for and read through dozens of examples of how hot take is actually being used in Google, Google Books, Nexus, other databases. And I collected a few that might be included with the definition to illustrate the phrase. Finally, I wrote a few drafts of an actual definition. And so far, I've settled on this. Hot take, noun, a strongly worded, provocative, or sensational opinion. It is definitely missing some nuance, the idea of deliberate though provocative sort of covers that. The idea of sarcastic, because hot take is usually applied in a pejorative or mocking way. No one says, this is my hot take and is meaning to be taken seriously. Obama, as I said, got this. What he said after the clip I played conveyed the idea that the opinion being expressed is so obvious as to be unserious. In other words, I'm not wedded to or satisfied with my hot take definition. So I am turning to you listeners for help. Lexicography is, of course, more and more a collaborative effort these days. Uh, so let's collaborate. Let's crowdsource hot take. Um, let's crowdsource my book. Uh, does my definition of hot take need to be broader? Does it need to be more nuanced? Does it need to allude to or um, directly address the sarcasm angle? How would you define hot take? If you had to choose a sports commentator to cite in one of the verbal illustrations, who would it be? Skip Bayless? Colin Cowherd, Stephen A. Smith, some other jackass. One way of deciding would be to use some hot take analytics, I think. For instance, in a video on ESPN of Stephen A. Smith talking about Game 6 of Warrior Spurs, I tallied 20 hot takes in 1 minute and 55 seconds. One hot take every 5.75 seconds. Smith's HTP, hot takes per, was even more impressive 
after game seven, 17 hot takes in a minute 42 or a 6.0 HTP. Anyway, let's do it like this. I will post on the Hang Up and Listen Facebook page. And in the comments, you can supply your own definition of hot take or edit mine. Share with me any sightings of hot take that you have found actual examples with a link, if possible, of hot take in any kind of medium. Or if you have what you consider to be the classic hot take, not the use of the phrase, but the hot take itself, you can post a link to that too. Mike, what's your CR7? So in the day or two after uh, we taped our last show, uh, when we talked about the undefeated, the new ESPN African-American-themed, I don't know, vertical, whatever you want to call it, Michael Wilbon came out with a piece essentially arguing that analytics, advanced metrics, if you will, are unknown and unimportant to the black community. It was an execrable piece on a few levels. I'll just pull out a few sentences. It's like calculating points per 100 possessions, a very popular go-to stat in NBA circles. Why is that more important than points per 48 minutes, which is the actual time in which an NBA game is played? Do I have to? No. You're a listener to hang up and listen. You don't need for me to explain why a points per possession metric might, I don't know, tell you something, taking into account the pace of play, tell you something about a team or a defense or an offense. Secondly, here's another thing that he said. One stat, according to ESPN stats and information, assigned Curry some number in excess of 100 for his three-point sniping from the corners. This tells you just how bogus the exercise is if the percentage reports to be greater than 100. Okay, Mike. If in one year, the export of Argentina of tungsten is 200 units, and then the next year it's 300 units, what percentage is that in the second year? Yes, it's 150%. Percentage means of 100. Look, I don't need to be mansplaining, white-splaining, stat-splaining this to you. I just think it's embarrassing that an editor can let a sentence like that in and not tell him, Look, you could make whatever arguments you want, but you can't come out and say there's no such thing as a percentage that's over 100. It just makes you look ignorant. Now, the reaction to this piece was pretty uniform, and it broke down in a couple of ways. There were just the general analytics community, or not. it didn't even have to be community, just someone who ever looked at OPS and said, oh yeah, that's a useful stat. That adds a bit to the realm of human knowledge. And they attacked it, they criticized it based on just how ignorant it was of the numbers. But then within black journalism especially, they talked about how stereotypical it was, how based on Michael Wilbon interviewing four or five or six people, he came out with the blanket statement that black people don't like analytics. One of my favorite critiques, and it wasn't shouting from the rooftop, but Chris Herring, who covers the Knicks for the Wall Street Journal, who is a uh, black sports writer who uses analytics a lot, just tweeted about it a couple times and was interviewed about it. Yeah, Here's a tweet. I'll quote him. I swear you don't have to be that smart to understand or use analytics. So I was listening to a bunch of podcasts that discussed the Wilbon thing, and I could recommend a couple in order. Wilbon was on the Hot Takedown podcast, which is the 538 sports podcast, analytics focused. I've been on it. Uh, those guys, I like those guys a lot, those guys and that woman. And he, it, was, it was a fine interview. Um, they pressed back on Wilbon trying to say, well, don't you understand why 
points per possession might give you some insight, and he just fell back on. But why not 48 minutes? It was a little bit of a dialogue of the deaf. There was no raking over the coals. It seemed to me like they got this big star from ESPN. He gave them his time, and they pressed back as hard as they could with being respectful. Uh, There's a podcast that The Undefeated has called The Undefeated Show, and I listened to that, and the hosts were talking about, yeah, we don't talk about analytics within the black community. That was basically agreed to, but still they said, you know, Wilbon should not be dismissing out of hand the experiences of all black people. Bamani Jones on his ESPN show, who has a, an advanced degree in economics, really pretty gently took Wilbon to school. But my favorite podcast was his and hers, also an ESPN podcast. Michael Smith and Jamel Hill excoriated the piece, totally respectful of Wilbon. There was a five-minute preamble about how Wilbon's the OG, and we don't say anything except how much he means to sports writing and black sports writing, but man, what a dumb piece this was. So in a way, it was almost useful in that the piece was so bad that it got a lot of people talking about how bad the piece was and pushed back against this stereotype that black people don't use analytics. I don't know if Will Bond learned anything about the usefulness of points per 100 possessions, but hopefully the next time when he's asked to write a column, he'll give 110%. Josh, what's your CR7? So if you watch the NBA playoffs, you've probably seen this commercial. Five-star reviews. I'm always asked, why do you have the Chicago Bulls Argyle sock monkey? They always say, why don't you have one? Five stars. Five stars. Meditation is about thinking of nothing. Five stars. I rocked a zero on my chest just like the best. Five stars. For all the basics and so much more, nbastore.com. All right, so let's go to nbastore.com and look at the actual reviews for these products. Oh, the sock monkey is out of stock. That's that's great, NBA. Good good job on the supply chain there. The yoga mat has uh, no reviews. Uh, and so where do you go on the internet if you want just kind of the cream of the crop? You want to get the straight poop? You really want, you know, unexpurgated. You want, you want a real opinion from real trustworthy Americans. You go to the YouTube comments section. So the YouTube comments for the Jimmy Butler sock monkey commercial. Let's see what some of America's most uh, intelligent product reviewers have to say. Let's see these five stars uh, star reviews. Twenty four dollars for a fucking stuff monkey. I'm not going to read the rest of that. Overpriced trash. NBA and their merchandising. Why don't I have one? Because it's out of stock. Quit playing this commercial if you don't have inventory. Well, that's actually a good point. Quality is exceptional. Three stars. I like that one. Sold. $24. Why don't I have one? Trash. Fuck star reviews. Soft. Second. First. Then there's one that's kind of crude about sexual relations with the horse. Not a sock market. Then there's WTF is this gay shit. So... Thank you, YouTube, for living up to everything. Uh, YouTube is what we thought it was, wasn't it? All right. For reviews for the John Wall yoga mat, keep getting them checks, John. I'm guessing those strippers got five stars too. That's not very nice. $39.99 for a fucking yoga mat from the NBA. How much money do these fuckers want? LMAO. And then, of course, second and first. Second. (laughs) 
Second is the worst person on earth. I don't care anyone who is trading in homophobia or sexism. Second is the worst. Uh... So here's here's my advice to the NBA. In the future, if you're billing something as having five-star reviews, it should have some five-star reviews. I was all ready to buy that sock monkey, but I can't, you know, all, all I can rely on is the YouTube comments. And people there don't seem very happy with your product. So NBA, you brought this on yourself. Make more sock monkeys if you want to keep running that commercial. We'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangupatslate.com. I'm going to order a yoga mat for $5.87 from Walmart. Fuck you, NBA. <laughs> we'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hang Up and listen on iTunes. You can find us by going to itunes.com slash slatepodcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan on Facebook at facebook.com slash listen. Our intern is Laura Wagner. Our producer is Mickey Capper. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Steve Lichtai, and Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Hang up and listen as part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.